0: The Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Trilogy contains three unique works of political and satirical fiction that capture the universe of lies, disinformation, and prejudice that constitute the epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome. The trilogy includes The Stonewall Massacre, The African Swine Fever Novel, and The Closing Argument. You are about to hear excerpts from all three books, which are available as audiobooks and as print or Kindle books on Amazon or at charlesortleb.com dot com. That's Charles O-R-T-L-E-B dot com. The first brief excerpt is from the Stonewall Massacre, which is an alternative history of the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic and the Stonewall riots. If the gay movement had been destroyed at Stonewall in 1969, would there have been an AIDS epidemic as we know it? Would the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic have been recognized as the real AIDS epidemic? Told from the perspective of a man who lives to tell the story of the Stonewall Riots, the story comes to a shocking conclusion. The book is narrated by Ken Camlett.
1: The restaurant wasn't completely filled with raucous laughter. It was occasionally punctuated by sniffling and outright weeping. Judy Garland had died the week before. So you could say that a part of everyone in that room had also died. Nobody seemed to be surprised that Pills and Booze had done her in. No doubt, there were more than a few in the room who thought they were on the same messy trajectory. As I walked back to our underperforming kitchen, I would hear someone say, Poor Joey. Or, Poor Liza. This, being the ironic, sarcastic village, it was not lost on the clever crowd that Judy had died on the toilet. That Garland had ended up in a fifth marriage with a seedy discotheque manager reminded us all too much of the cockamamie nature of our own lives and the final relationships we feared we'd end up in. How she ended up surprised nobody in the room. We knew the terrain all too well. Some of the customers had gone to the Frank E. Campbell Funeral Home on 81st Street, a few waiting ten hours to see the glass-topped casket earlier in the day, and they were alternatively distraught and ecstatic as they dropped the names of the celebrities they'd seen uptown going into the funeral home. Show-stopping names like Ray Bolger, Comden and Green, Mickey Rooney, Patricia Kennedy, Mayor Lindsay, Otto Preminger, and the one person who took everyone's breath away, Lauren Bacall. Our oldest customer, who had been outside the actual service that very morning, said that he had been quite moved by James Mason's eulogy, which the people outside could hear over a loudspeaker. He said that he had almost fainted when he saw Liza walk in with Joey and Lorna, and that some of the mourners on the sidewalk had, at one point, begun spontaneously singing, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. One of the diners had a single yellow rose he was holding at the table. He said it had fallen from the top of her coffin. But I had my doubts. I remember thinking that this was going to be a day in my memory, like the one Kennedy was killed. When we look back at certain events in our lives, We edit and play games with ourselves and often add ridiculous moments of personal foreboding to the time preceding them, going back in dishonest time machines to plant some ESP that was never really there. But I have to say that the hot night of June 27th, 1969, there was an undercurrent of expectation in Anna's that something big was going to happen. Maybe it was a herd's sixth sense of that kind of thing, a common feeling in the room and in maybe all the village folks in general that night, maybe all over New York City, that Judy's soul was trapped in some gray area of love and applause between life and death. Maybe it was that our souls just couldn't let go of hers. Whatever it was, there was definitely something in the air. It was a hopeful time. Well, with the roller coaster success of the civil rights movement, the free speech movement, and the zany social development that was often referred to as the counterculture. For anyone who was homosexual, the counterculture soon became a convenient new euphemism for those who loved in the shadows. All these changes had given us a sense of perhaps misplaced optimism, or at least a respite from our chronic pessimism. In retrospect, my guardian angel must have been a nervous wreck in that bar, deathly afraid that he wasn't going to get me out of there in time, and he must have been relieved that I finally left and was several blocks away from the Stonewall Inn when it all started to happen, shortly after one. On my way down Christopher Street, I saw a couple of men in suits and a couple of burly cops in uniforms walking together up the street. Because they were all animatedly talking to each other, I assumed they were all coppers. I brushed aside my sense of foreboding and continued warily on my way. What transpired shortly afterwards— became a kind of surreal, traumatic blur and was very loosely constructed from untrustworthy visual memories and things I later heard from distraught men who were either inside or outside the inn when the police arrived. An uncanny number of people subsequently also said things just didn't feel right that night before the whole thing happened.
0: The next brief excerpt is from the African Swine Fever novel, which has been called The Animal Farm of Our Time. This satirical fable uses talking pigs to raise serious questions about the role of propaganda and disinformation to control what people think and do about epidemics. Anybody who knows the cockamamie history of the CDC and the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic will appreciate the book's sarcasm and numerous irreverent passages. The humor in the book is dark and the vision of current and future public health situations is apocalyptic. The book is narrated by K. Webster.
2: One Fine Day in March Because Coochie Coochie often got up very early every morning before her older brother Pig, his real name, had completed his shut-eye, she was practically glued to the gate of the fence when Mr. Boss arrived with the vet and other mysterious important-looking people, often in white coats or business suits, who always appeared to be filled with consternation. She listened to everything they said because they were usually discussing very complicated pig diseases, and that was a subject extremely dear to Coochie Coochie's heart. The talking-to's that pig gave to Coochie Coochie were usually very curative but perhaps his most difficult medical intervention occurred when he saved her from porcine spongiform encephalopathy, which she decided she had contracted after she heard one of Mr. Boss's discussions with several vet and USDAers at the fence. It took almost a day of lecturing her, but by the end of his efforts, she was good to go. One morning, she came bounding excitedly toward Sleepy Pig squealing, we have swine mystery disease! We have swine mystery disease! Nothing picked up Coochie Coochie's spirits more than a diagnosis, especially if it was thought to be germinal. We have what? asked Pig. Swine mystery disease. It's all over the country. It's very serious. What exactly is it? An increasingly annoyed Pig asked. They don't know. That's why it's called swine mystery disease. That sounds very silly, said Pig. Oh, no, it isn't, Coochie Coochie exclaimed. I suspect that I'm going to get it, or I've already contracted it. Pig, please look at my tongue. Do I feel warm to you? How do you know anything about this swine mystery disease? Asked Pig. She sniffily replied. Didn't I say that it was called swine mystery disease? It's a complete mystery. It's a mysterious mystery. Pig was worried that their younger brother, the beloved piglet Bambino, would develop a biomedical imagination like Coochie Coochie's. A few weeks before this, Coochie Coochie had awakened Pig, saying, Pig, I think I have porcine epigenetic. Pig knew that she had probably picked those words up while listening to Mr. Boss and some scientist in a tight suit with high-water pants, but he didn't even know what they meant. He just assured Coochie Coochie that there was no way she could have porcine epigenetics. Swine mystery disease was definitely something Pig would have to discuss that night with Professor Gable IV at Moonlight University. But Pig still had to get through the rest of the day, which always culminated in Mrs. Boss's evening serenade. Every night after doing the dinner dishes, Mrs. Boss came out in her apron at twilight with a bucket of treats and stood at the gate singing, Oh, Piggy Boy, which she sang to the tune of Oh, Danny Boy. Oh, Piggy Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountain side. The summer's gone and all the roses falling. Tis you, tis you. Must go and I must bide But come ye back When summer's in the meadow Or when the valley's hushed And white with snow For I'll be here In sunshine or in shadow Oh, piggy boy Oh, Piggy boy, I love you so. It didn't matter how many times Sassafras and Coochie Coochie heard it, it always made them swoon. But whenever Pig saw Mrs. Boss barreling across the way toward the great pig pen, he always muttered under his breath,
3: Oh, brother
2: and headed to a far corner of the Great pig pen to work on his assignments for the night's class at Moonlight University. Pig was generally fond of Mrs. Boss, but there was an unbearable sadness about her that sometimes forced him to look away and try to think about something else. Mrs. Boss had a domineering older sister who often visited from a farm in another county and she was clearly very competitive with Mrs. Boss. Mrs. Boss had five chronically ill children, so, as a consequence, her older sister had to have six chronically ill children, and she insisted that her children were even more seriously ill. So, she was constantly making her point at the gate, and some of the pigs could hear this all too clearly that she deserved more sympathy because she obviously had a much harder row to hoe in life. Both women were always referring to a couple of their children as their special-needs darlings. It wasn't uncommon for them to argue over which of them had more children on what they called the autism spectrum. Coochie-coochie always made sure to be standing close to the two sisters when they conversed. She never knew when she would pick up a new disease threat she feared might pass from all of the sick children to her and the rest of the herd. Each child almost seemed to be an epidemic unto himself. Thus far, Coochie Coochie had learned she might be in danger of contracting chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme disease, lupus, Sjogren's Syndrome, Autism, Asperger's, Juvenile Diabetes, Cognitive Dysfunction, Drug Sensitivity, Brain Damage, AIDS, Vocal Paresis, Loss of Libido—Pig had a hard time explaining that one— Shrinking Libs, Strep Throat, Tongue Discoloration, Seizures, Mood Swings, Transient Blindness? Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, Mysterious Weight Gain, and Mysterious Weight Loss, and those were just the ones she could remember hearing the sisters heatedly discuss. Whenever Mrs. Boss's sister visited, Pig always had a great deal of clarifying and disease debunking to do with Coochie Coochie. He often didn't know where to begin. Coochie Coochie would diagnose herself, and then Pig would have to patiently undiagnose her. On an almost weekly basis, Mrs. Boss's children were taken to the doctors or a hospital for one medical test or another, even the ones who didn't seem to be obviously ill. Omni The total information pig reported to the council that Mrs. Boss had spoken to her sister about the brain imaging that had been performed on her children, showing that most of them had something wrong with some vital part of their gray matter. Her older sister had to make one of her predictable comments that the apples didn't fall far from the tree. But Mrs. Boss threw the whole thing back in her sister's face by pointing out that her sister's children often acted stranger and more brain-damaged than her own. I wouldn't talk if I were you, sister, Mrs. Boss said. The two women often discussed how finicky their children's eating habits were and how they constantly had to change their diets. They both talked a great deal about the milestones that their special-needs darlings had missed. One of Mrs. Boss's children, Teddy, was always standing around in strange contorted postures that the herd had never seen before in humans. Sometimes it seemed as if Teddy were bent over in extreme pain. Clearly, something was seriously wrong with Teddy. Often, he would run in circles like Tiggly Wiggly, one of the Chow's troubled sons, or He would just lie flat on the ground or on the top of the picnic table, staring up at the sky, making bird sounds. Sometimes he had to be pulled away from other children his age because he was trying to bite or scratch them. Aunt Matilda, Pig's mother's older sister, more about her later, took a special interest in the fact that Teddy was ill, wearing a diaper at the age of seven. There were disturbing occasions when he would suddenly start hitting himself for no reason. Once, when little Teddy was striking himself, Mr. Boss went into the house and found a pair of handcuffs to put on him. Teddy looked much younger than his chronicle age. Sometimes it seemed as if he were being starved to death, but that was because he often refused to eat. Coochie Coochie worried so much about him that she sometimes pushed her carrot treats to the fence hoping Teddy would pick them up and eat them, which he usually did, to the great dismay of Mrs. Boss. Mrs. Boss was always complaining to her sister about their child's fragile, damaged immune systems. She once said they were like cookies that had crumbled, and on more than one occasion she exclaimed, "'Our kids have more infections and co-infections "'than there are ears of corn in Kansas.' The sisters also had many spats about their own illness, which they called chronic fatigue syndrome. One day, Coochie Coochie and Omni listened intently as they fought bitterly over something called chronic fatigue syndrome, neuroimmune subsets. Mrs. Boss's older sister had said, I really think they're finally getting somewhere with this dynamic neuroimmune subset theory of chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm even more hopeful about it than the string theory of chronic fatigue syndrome. Mrs. Boss immediately shot a wicked glance at her older sister and said, You've never heard a single flaky idea about chronic fatigue syndrome that you didn't jump on. I have a list, sister. According to Omni, Mrs. Boss complained to her sister that she believed any silly notion about their medical predicament that came out of the government "'and yet she refused to see what was happening "'before her very eyes in the barnyard. "'Omni had heard Mrs. Boss yelling at her sister. "'Oh, yeah, a nation of mysteriously sick pigs "'has absolutely nothing to do with a nation "'of mysteriously sick children and adults. "'Mrs. Boss often said she was exhausted "'from keeping an eye on Teddy and her other four children.' She wasn't sure whether that was contributing to her chronic fatigue syndrome or whether it had a life of its own. The swine in the great pig pen were very aware of the illnesses of the Boss family and feared the panoply of human diseases would spread to them. Many of the pigs were careful not to get too physically close to the Boss children. Boss family members always seemed to be wearing different human disease awareness ribbons Many of the pigs in the pen had heard Mrs. Boss telling her sister that she thought her children were infected with something that was being passed back and forth between them and was always changing. Some of the more nervous pigs literally started avoiding the family like the plague. Coochie Coochie took a special interest in Teddy because he was Mrs. Boss's youngest, and she didn't think he got the respect from the other children that he deserved. Teddy reminded her of her little piglet brother, adorable Bambino, who constantly followed her around. She was horrified one day when she watched Teddy at a picnic, refusing to eat anything, and, as a consequence, having a hot dog jammed into his mouth by Mr. Boss. She couldn't imagine forcing something from the garbage dump down Bambino's mouth. Mrs. Boss and her older sister occasionally talked about the serious digestive problems their children had, like inflammatory bowel disease. It was always inflammatory, this and inflammatory, that. The two sisters sometimes prayed at the fence together for their children, which was the only time they weren't at each other's throats. Professor Gable the Fourth was the first one to give a name to Teddy's problem. After hearing many descriptions of Teddy's behavior and health
3: issues, he said, Oh, pshaw! it's autism, plain and simple. Your little friend Teddy is autistic. It's all over the country. It's been happening for a number of years. I've heard about this from wild boars living in every part of this country. One wild boar told me recently he heard from some wild boars from South America who had crossed Mexico and made it over the Texas border. That autism was happening in children all over the countries down there. Every country had its own peculiar name for it, and they heard from some Portuguese wild boars that it was spreading in humans throughout Europe and Russia and China. The only place I haven't heard much about it is Africa, but not too many wild boars have been coming over there ever since the end of the slave trade. I love that humans don't think it's a contagious epidemic typical. Students, you must never emulate the humans. Just connect the dots and acknowledge the obvious.
0: The third brief excerpt is The Closing Argument, which is about an African-American man who is accused of spreading AIDS. His lawyer captures the attention of the world when he puts the government on trial for lying about the relationship of chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS. In a very detailed and science-based closing argument, The lawyer attempts to open the eyes of the jurors to the fact that the truth about AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome lies behind a mask of scientific fraud and deception. The unpleasant truth about AIDS and CFS is that racist and anti-gay thinking are the coin of the epidemiological realm. The unresolved conclusion forces the reader to act as a juror by deciding the verdict. Is the government covering up the relationship between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome or
4: isn't it? The book is narrated by Howard E. Killick. The Closing Argument Your Honor, I want to thank you and your very professional support staff for attending to our needs so well throughout this disturbing and difficult trial. I think I speak for all of the lawyers in this courtroom. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I would first like to thank all of you for your tremendous patience during the last six months. Judge Murray told you at the outset, this could be a very disturbing trial, and some of you may be in a little shock about how true that turned out to be. You've acquitted yourselves extremely well as citizens. I'm sure this is an experience that you will never forget. Now, even though I'm sure that you're tired and can't wait for this crazy trial to be over so that you can get back to your loved ones, now is the time when we most need the attention of your hearts, minds, and souls. Yes? We even need for your souls to be listening now. It isn't just Christian King who needs your attention. The whole country needs it. History is watching you all very, very closely. What you decide here could change the fate of millions of people all over the world. I'm going to try to be as brief and concise as possible. But as all of you can guess, I have a lot of ground to cover here. Because it turns out that we're not just trying to save a man, we're trying to save a nation. I'm sure that you are all aware that this is the most talked about case in the world these days. Mr. King's face has been on the cover of every important American news magazine. The story about his alleged crime has led the news on every television station in the nation. I'm sure that Mr. King's mother never dreamed that her son, Christian, would end up an international celebrity under these circumstances. But maybe when my mother named me after Frederick Douglass, she had a vision of what I would be called upon to do here. Certainly, Mr. King's mother never imagined that her son's face would appear on the cover of one national magazine with the words, The AIDS Menace, under it. No way did she ever think that would happen. How would you like to be a black man looking at the face of another black man on the cover of a magazine with the words, The AIDS Menace, at the same time that the Centers for Disease Control was saying that black men are at the highest risk of carrying the so-called AIDS virus? It's not the best time to be an African-American man in America. Added to the crime of driving while black... Or standing on the corner while black seems to be the new crime of making love while being black. But we'll get to that. When we began this trial, you remember how I told you that we needed for you to listen to all the witnesses with an open mind? If you had seen any of the publicity about Mr. King, you had to make your best effort to put it out of your mind. When you listened to the evidence in this trial, I asked you to listen closely to the facts. And for six months, you listened to so many facts that some of you should be given honorary degrees in law and science. After all that you've heard, some of you could even leave this courtroom today and begin doing AIDS research. In fact, I would guess that some of you have some pretty wild questions about AIDS and HIV now, and that you're going to want to go back out into the real world and ask them as soon as possible. I also want you to remember how I asked you to open your minds on the subject of AIDS. I warned you that by the end of this trial, you might no longer believe a single word that you have heard about AIDS, and that you were going to have your trust in the American government totally shaken, if it hadn't already been. That is a very scary experience for any citizen— it's easier to believe what everybody else believes than to stand up and express doubts and ask questions, especially about something as dreadful as AIDS. No one wants anything they've heard about AIDS to be wrong. We hope you liked these audio excerpts. All three books can be
0: found individually on Amazon or together in the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome trilogy, also on Amazon. They are available in print, audiobook, Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. You can find information on all of these books at charlesortleb.com. That's charlesortleb.com.